Okay, everybody. So welcome back to the to DC5 conference today. Um, as Dr. Shur is getting his slides up, I'd like to give him just a brief introduction. So in addition to being one of my mentors and um, someone I consider a very good friend, Dr. Shur is a world expert in bacterial pneumonia. So he did his uh, medical schooling at UVA, obtained a master's in health and policy at Hopkins, and then did his residency and fellowship both at the old Walter Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Dr. Schur also has an MBA from the Darden School of Business at UVA, has published more than 300 articles, reviews, and book chapters, and many, many of them in the field of bacterial pneumonia and VAP. He is a Fulbright Scholar, and most recently he was recognized as a world expert in bacterial pneumonia by Expertscape, which is um, awarded to people who really help uh, further the, that, that field and puts them in 0.1% of all scholars in the field of bacterial pneumonia. So um, I'm always excited to hear Andy talk, and I think this is going to be a fantastic lecture. So if I could turn it over to Dr. Shore. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Um, everyone should be able to see my slides. I'm just going to move it over to slideshow if it chooses to participate. There we go. <clears throat> so there's a lot I want to get through, so we'll just get started. And uh, I would suggest, given the format with Zoom, if you just hold your questions till the end, um, and then hopefully we can have time to discuss some things. So this is the dilemma we face as clinicians in the ICU when it comes to bacterial infections generally and pneumonia specifically. Uh, we know that appropriate antibiotic therapy is the key determinant of outcome. We know that resistance makes choosing appropriate antibiotics very challenging. Most of the antibiotics we've used historically have data that support them that come from non-critically ill patients, which ignores the important aspects of critically ill patients. And so the challenge we face in 75% of all sepsis in, in the ICU is due to pneumonia is how do we appropriately utilize antibiotics and deal with pneumonia? So these were the old guidelines, uh, but they're helpful for definitions. We had hospital-acquired pneumonia, which was any pneumonia that occurred after 48 hours of hospitalization. We had VAP, which was a new pneumonia in a ventilated patient that occurred after 48 to 72 hours of mechanical ventilation. And then there was this concept of healthcare-associated pneumonia, which we'll talk a little bit about, that really was a way to get patients or people to think about patients who presented to the ED with risk factors for resistance so that people would realize that MRSA and pseudomonas could actually be ED-presenting pathogens, but in a select group of patients based on select risk factors that you can see enumerated there. Uh, and the theory was at one end of the spectrum, you had CAP. At the other end of the spectrum, you had BAP. Uh, and each CAP kind of you know, overlapped between them in the middle. And as there was an increasing risk for resistance, as you can see here, there was a parallel increasing risk for kind of crude mortality. So this is just some data on HCAP. Uh, this was a study we published some time ago looking at HCAP, and you can see the breakout of pathogens in terms of what was seen in CAP versus HCAP. And these are all patients presenting to the ER. The problem was the criteria for HCAP, uh, as they then existed, weren't very specific. They were pretty sensitive, but they weren't very specific. <clears throat> and so that started fostering antibiotic abuse in the ER, where everybody thought that the only antibiotics that could ever treat pneumonia were Pitasvanco. Uh, and, you know, your hospitals are all like my hospitals, where we basically give Peptaz Vanco out um, in the jello on the tray when the patient can eat. Uh, this was another follow-on study I actually did with uh, one of our current faculty here, who was a fellow here, looking at our own experience, showing the exact same thing, that clearly you could see MRSA and Pseudomonas presenting to um, the ED, uh, and certainly they were much more prevalent in healthcare-associated patients than CAP patients, but it wasn't a very good separator in terms of what was going on. 
And so we actually and others have developed various point scoring tools to help doctors dealing with resistance that presents to the hospital. Uh, and this was a scoring tool that we uh, made a couple of years ago. We published it in archives and you got points based on severity of illness, which was novel, but other specific risk factors in terms of coming from a nursing home, being a dialysis patient recently hospitalized. And the risk score actually worked pretty well, um, you know, in terms of there being a strong association for having more of those risk factors and actual recovery of a, a problem pathogen. Uh, and we externally validated that in a whole separate data set showing exactly the same thing. The problem is when you actually look at the area under the, op uh, the receiver operating curve for these scores or any of these definitions, they're still mediocre. Uh, and that's why the new guidelines have really tried to shy away from this concept of HCAP because it's led to indiscriminate overuse of antibiotics, which breeds all sorts of problems uh, down the line. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But let's now turn to VAP, um, because I think that's the meat of what we all deal with. The first question I think about VAP is what's its morbidity penalty? Uh, we published this in CHEST about a year ago. This was a data set looking at about 9,000 patients uh, with both HAP and VAP. Uh, about 12% of the patients had a carbapenem-resistant pathogen. Uh, and you can see in the figure the impact of HAP and VAP on length of stay overall and post-infection length of stay. Uh, and we estimated that an, uh, VAP was associated with attribut an attributable length of stay of about 10 days, two weeks, uh, and the attributable cost was about $30,000. Because if you think about your patients who get VAP, it's not like they get better in two days, they're liberated from the ventilator and leave, right? I mean, there's clearly a morbidity penalty associated with it, and it's not small. Uh, the more controversial question is, what's the mortality penalty with VAP? And it turns out that a lot of people die with VAP, they don't die of VAP. So this was some data, and the study's been replicated uh, several times, looking at predicted versus observed mortality, uh, because it's kind of hard to sort out, you know, how you actually determine what is attributable mortality. And what these authors estimated was that the attributable mortality of VAP was about 4%, right? And you can see that here. And so, yes, there are some patients who actually die because they got VAP, but a lot of people die with VAP. Right, I came in, bad COPD exacerbation, I'm on a ventilator, I get VAP. Well, if I died, did I die of the COPD exacerbation or VAP? Bad cancer, get on a ventilator, get VAP. Well, did the cancer kill you or did the VAP kill you? And in contrast, we've all taken care of patients who have bad COVID, are getting better from their COVID, get VAP, and then die. Yeah, that's clearly an attributable death. And so understand that there's no question about the mortality related to this disease in terms of the penalty. There certainly remains controversy about the attributable mortality, and there's certainly no controversy about the attributable morbidity. So before we talk about antimicrobials and prescribing, I think it's important to understand microbiology and epidemiology. Um, when you look at the data, you generally see figures like this. This comes from EPIC. This is a Jean-Louis Vincent point prevalence survey thousands of ICU patients every day, or <clears throat> thousands of patients uh, in an ICU, one day global survey. And most patients who have a severe infection in the ICU have a gram-negative pathogen. The most common pathogen tends to be pseudomonas. A lot of those pseudomonas are resistant to carbapenem. And ESBLs are a big problem now in the US. They're even more of a problem across the globe. Uh, fortunately, in the U.S., we tend to have very little acinetobacter, except for selected kind of pockets, and very little carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteraceae, CRE. However, the point of showing the slide is not to show the top pathogens 
and it's not to get you to drive your antibiotic prescribing based on this kind of list. The point is national, global, all of these data are functionally useless to your prescribing because you need to know what grows in your local ICU. We in my ICUs do not have Acinetobacter or a CRE problem. If you're taking care of a lot of lung transplant or heavily immunosuppressed stem cell transplants, your patients are at risk for a whole different host of pathogens, right? You know, you can go to certain ICUs in some hospitals and they have Acinetobacter everywhere. Down the hall in a different ICU, no Acinetobacter. And so the point of showing national data is to remind you that you really need to have local data. You need to know what your problem pathogens are in your ICU so you can come up with appropriate prescribing patterns. So for example, for us, Piptaz is not our best anti-pseudomonal, right? We tend to use a lot of cefepime, but we wouldn't know that if we didn't look at our own local data. I am often convinced, and some of you may have heard me make this joke before, when we write within normal limits in a medical record, uh, it really means, WNL really means we never looked. And there's a lot of never looking when it comes to local data about microbiology and understanding your local problems. And this is just some confirmatory data from another study we published, again, from a large administrative database, just showing, again, nationally, it's the same pattern globally, the same kind of problem overall. So now let's turn to diagnostics. The question comes up about how do you diagnose VAP? And the little secret is there is no gold standard. Is the gold standard me? Is the gold standard you? Is the gold standard John Louis Vincent? Is it Derek Angus? You know, they all think they're a gold standard. That's great. They're good people. But the point is the clinical picture is confusing. The differential diagnosis is huge. It's a textbook. And I can generally hallucinate a left lower lobe infiltrate in anybody's daily chest film if I want to. Oh, it's a shaggy heart border. I can't see the diaphragm. Maybe they've got pneumonia. And so the point is there's no approach without problems. And the world generally breaks down into people who do lower airway cultures that are invasive, mini BAL, mini brush, or traditional bronchoscopy, and people who go with sputum cultures and tracheal aspirates. And one way to actually help you think about this and to formalize things before you even get to that diagnostic technology question is something called the clinical pulmonary infection score. Uh, and this is the original CPIS score. You'll see it used in a lot of clinical trials. And all it does is objectively put in a point scale things that you and I consider at the bedside, fever, white count, secretions, oxygenation, chest x-ray. Uh, 0.6 is in the original score. It's not in the current score that everybody uses because it's kind of post hoc information. And this score can be as high as 10. What we know is that if the score is less than six, your patient doesn't have pneumonia. There are randomized controlled trials of patients with low CPIS scores who are randomized to dealer's choice antibiotics or basically nothing, and it doesn't change mortality. So the CPIS can be a helpful tool to get you to draw, walk away from the antibiotic or get house staff from not reflexively treating every fever with an antibiotic for pneumonia in the middle of the night uh, and do it actually safely. Uh, as a gold standard, however, it's certainly limited. This is uh, Mike Klompas's, one of Mike Klompas's first meta-analyses. Gives me hope that I can get my meta-analyses published in, uh, in JAMA. It's a three-study meta-analysis, uh, but it shows the sensitivity is okay. The specificity is somewhat limited. So what about other ways to actually make a diagnosis of VAP, right? So the point to also realize with VAP is there's a lot of inter-observer variability when we rely on just clinical criteria. And by clinical criteria, I mean just chest x-ray, fever, white count, you know, no specific documented culture. 
And this was a study that Marin Collif did a, a long time ago, looking at about 2,000 patients ventilated, looking at the prevalence of VAP, whether the clinician was actually treating them for VAP or whether the infection prevention nurse came by and said the patient actually had VAP by the CDC criteria. And you can see that this is a scatter plot. The, the, the Kappa statistic for agreement was less than a coin toss. And so the point is clinical criteria alone can lead to both over and under diagnosis of VAP. And so you've got to realize the limitations with clinical criteria alone. So then what about various diagnostic criteria in terms of the question of invasive or a non-invasive approach? And again, by non-invasive approach, I just mean a tracheal aspirate or a sputum culture. By invasive approach, I mean bronchoscopy, mini BAL, we do brush, what have you. This was a meta-analysis we published in Critical Care Medicine some time ago. And at that point, there were four randomized controlled trials. And when you pull the analysis in terms of looking at mortality is the endpoint. Because if you really want me to adopt your diagnostic technology, prove to me that it impacts mortality, I'll be impressed. And we saw how you made the diagnosis of pneumonia didn't matter. What's interesting is that three of those four trials actually looked at the question of how the, the type of culture led to antibiotics being changed so that the patient got appropriate antibiotic therapy. And what it showed was that with invasive culturing mechanisms, right, brush, BAL, what have you, antibiotics were more likely to be changed to catch a pathogen that was missed than if you just used a tracheal aspirate. Now, you might ask the question, well, if catching the pathogen that's missed is a good thing and you're doing it much more often, why is there no mortality advantage when we look at the pooled effects rate over here? And the point is, this data about the pathogen comes back three days too late. It comes back after you've already started the patient on, on initial antibiotic therapy, and it emphasizes the point that you've got to get it right up front. Catching your mistake is very hard to undo the mortality penalty that comes with inappropriate antibiotic therapy. And we'll review that data in a little bit. Now, subsequent to that meta-analysis, the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group under Derek Hyland did a great randomized controlled trial looking at patients who were at risk for VAP uh, and randomizing them to a lower airway culture or a tracheal aspirate. And they showed absolutely no difference in mortality, which doesn't surprise me, no difference in cure, no difference in antibiotics. And I'm like, hmm, that doesn't make much sense. It doesn't fit with what we saw before. But you have to understand the major limitation of this study or the major limitations of the study, even though it made it in the journal. First of all, they were doing a dual, two studies in one factorial design. Patients in this study were also randomized to either mono or dual therapy for gram-negative coverage. So Cipro alone versus, say, cefepime and amikacin. Well, because patients were getting randomized in one arm to monotherapy with the quinolone, you really couldn't let anybody with pseudomonas in the study because quinolones are pretty mediocre pseudomonas drugs. And they also didn't allow any anti-MRSA coverage. And so it therefore excluded patients at high risk for the organisms that I actually collect in my ICU. The, actually pre the actual prevalence of MRSA and pseudomonas in this population combined was less than 8%, whereas in most ICUs, when you're looking at VAP, it's closer to 40. So it's not generalizable to the population that we actually care for. Secondly, antibiotics were curtailed very effectively because the study nurse told doctors to stop antibiotics if the cultures were negative. And so there's a big Hawthorne effect here going on as well. So the point is, understand that the value of diagnostics in VAP is not a mortality issue. The value of diagnostics in VAP is telling you what you're growing 
so you can de-escalate and narrow your antibiotics and shorten the course of therapy and prevent antibiotic resistance. Because if a lower airway culture is negative, patients don't need antibiotics for pneumonia. They may need antibiotics for something else, but they don't need them for pneumonia. And you're very unlikely to get tracheal aspirates that are negative because once you've had an endotracheal tube in for 72 hours, your upper airway is almost always colonized with lots of things. And in terms of that colonization, it now turns us to the issue of pathogenesis. Because if you want to really focus on prevention, you need to understand pathogenesis. And so there are generally two steps that affect this disease. One is bacterial colonization of the upper aerodigestive tract, and then aspiration of those contaminated secretions into the lower airway. And this figure just kind of illustrates that. Here's an endotracheal tube, the balloon's up. Here's the secretions pooling above the cuff. They can leak in and cause pneumonia. You can get biofilm on the underside of the endotracheal tube that can break off and cause pneumonia. And we have randomized controlled trials that show that if you have subglottic suctioning, which sucks these secretions out, or you silver coat the endotracheal tube so no biofilm forms, you actually reduce the risk of that. The problem is the manufacturers made those tubes cost 100 bucks a piece as opposed to $2, so nobody does it. But those studies prove that the problem with VAP is the endotracheal tube. And so therefore, the biggest risk factor, risk factor for VAP is mechanical ventilation through an endotracheal tube, right? It increases the risk for VAP six to 20-fold, and it's very proportionate to the risk based on the duration of ventilation. So if you are doing your bundled rounds at the bedside, and you're talking about SATs and SBTs, in terms of awakening trials and breathing trials, if you look at Wes Ely's data, the mortality benefit in the SAT-SBT study all derives from getting the endotracheal tube out sooner. And so you need to think about VAP as you think about device-related infections. It's a device-related thing. So that SBT and that SAT are crucial to preventing this disease state. Because anything you can do to get the tube out faster or anything you can do to get the tube not to go in in the first place with non-invasive ventilation also prevents this disease state. Now, this is an old table from a prior guideline, but I think it's nice because it has a whole list of things, looks across various recommendations. Uh, and there are a lot of recommendations for preventing ventilator-associated pneumonia. Again, we've talked about some of them. Some of them are simple mechanisms for infection control in terms of hand hygiene. But it's important to remember from a critical care perspective, using OG tubes versus NG tubes hugely reduces the risk for VAP because if you keep the sinuses clean, the upper airway doesn't get colonized. And remember, OG tubes work just as well as NG tubes, right? Not changing the circuit, which used to happen all the time, led to breaking the circuit, increasing the risk for VAP. Head the bed elevation certainly can reduce the risk for VAP, and we have a randomized control trial to support that. Judicious use of stress ulcer prophylaxis. A lot of controversy about this, but most studies don't suggest that, or, or, or hint at, but don't prove uh, conclusively that PPIs increase the risk for VAP relative to, uh, uh, I mean, uh, to relative to H2 blockers, rather. You know, in Europe, they do a lot of oral decontamination. That's very controversial uh, because it has implications, but certainly chlorhexidine oral care has been shown pretty effectively to reduce the risk for VAP. So now let's turn to this issue of early appropriate therapy. This is the original trial. It's two decades old. It's not even a randomized controlled trial. It's an observational study <clears throat> looking at patients who got initial appropriate therapy for VAP or who did not, 
an appropriate therapy here was really simple. Did they get in a timely manner, <clears throat> you know, an antibiotic to which the eventual culprit pathogen was in vitro active? Nothing fancy here about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. If it was MRSA, did they get Vanco or linazolid? If it was some pseudomonas, did they get something that had an S next to it from the antibiogram? And what you see is there is a huge difference in overall and attributable mortality if you get the antibiotics wrong the first time. And although this is not a randomized controlled trial, because it would be unethical to randomize someone to inappropriate therapy, right? Not a study you're going to put your mom in, might be a study you put your mother-in-law in, right? You know, it's prospective and observational, and that's the quality of the literature we've got. Now, this was a different study, not looking only at uh, inappropriate therapy in VAP, but looking at septic shock more broadly. We published this a couple of years ago as well. And I've spent a career publishing studies that really emphasize the antibiotic prescribing paradigm of de-escalation, where you start broad to cover the appropriate pathogens in your ICU that you're worried for and that you de-escalate uh, so you don't promote resistance. Uh, you know, that kind of hand-in-hand, -hand, start broad in the narrow paradigm. And when you look at the clinical trials, when you looked at published reports, on average, we as clinicians were getting it wrong about 15 to 20% of the time, which is appalling, right? One in five patients were getting ceftriaxone or, and that was when MRSA was, just, I mean, it was just appalling. So we said, let's convert this into the number needed to treat. Because maybe the concept of the number needed to treat will change physician behavior. And so we looked at this population of about 1,200 subjects with septic shock, inappropriate antibiotic therapy, tripled the risk for death, no surprise, but the number needed to treat with appropriate antibiotic therapy to save one life was five. So for every five patients you insured got appropriate antibiotic therapy and septic shock, you had one additional survivor. That's amazing. If you think of the things we do in the ICU or the things we argue about in terms of the number needed to treat, five is breathtakingly small. To put it in perspective, you can't buy a car in this country that doesn't have a passenger side airbag. And the number needed to treat annually with passenger side airbags to prevent one death on the highways is measured in the hundreds. So the government won't let you drive to work in a car without a passenger side airbag where the number needed to treat is over 100, but we haven't figured out ways to tackle this issue with antibiotic prescribing where the number needed to treat is five. So antibiotic prescribing is not something we like to think about in critical care. We're more interested in the vent or the fluids or the pressors. Antibiotics save lives. They're the only thing that every study conclusively shows improves mortality and septic shock in pneumonia, and we don't emphasize it enough in our realm of specialty. And this is just Anand Kumar's data looking at it broken up by hours. What I don't think a lot of people realize in terms of this increasing risk for death with delay in appropriate antibiotic therapy is that this scale here on the y-axis is logarithmic. That's not linear, right? So waiting from one to two hours is quadrupling the risk for death, right? On time and on target. You would never say to the trauma surgeon, start the resuscitation in the second hour. You'd never say to the cath lab jockey for the ST elevation MI, we're going at hour 12. Right? It's the same thing for antibiotic management in severe infection, of which pneumonia is the paradigm. So we've talked about microbiology, we've talked about diagnostics, we've talked about starting antibiotics. Let's talk about stopping antibiotics. 
So this is the classic study. You should all be familiar with it. It's, it's, it's a paradigm study, paradigm shifting study in critical care. 400 bronchoscopically confirmed patients with pneumonia with VAP, randomized to eight versus 15 days of therapy, a third are in shock, and realized if the patient got inappropriate therapy for the first three days, right, if they got the cultures back and it was MRSA and all they was on, were on was ceftriaxone or ANSEF, the patient did not continue in the study. So you can't do short course therapy if the first three days of antibiotics weren't good. And what they showed overall was no difference in all-cause mortality, no difference in the subgroup of patients who had MRSA, huge difference in antibiotic-free days, but no difference in recurrence for everybody, but a trend towards or a, big, a little bit of a difference in recurrence rates for the gram-negative rods, the non-fermenters, so that's pseudomonas and acinetobacter. And we'll talk about that in a minute uh, a little bit more. So what do the most recent set of guidelines say? And they're already five plus years old. They generally recommend shorter courses of therapy. They emphasize the need to prevent undertreatment, but say balance it against promoting resistance. They have eliminated this concept of HCAP, but they now call it community onset pneumonia with risk factors for resistance. How that is fundamentally different from HCAP, I have not been able to get any of the guideline writers to explain to me uh, conclusively, but just understand what the guidelines say when it comes time to take your boards. You can see here some of the language and how it has and has not evolved over 11 years. Uh, again, particularly now, resistant pathogens lead to a significant risk of inadequate therapy, and that's associated with increased mortality. And again, a lot of the principles between 2005 and 2016 are very, very similar. What's the new emphasis? Again, it's balancing the need to prevent resistance and emphasizing shorter courses of therapy. This is the standard document or table you'll see in any one of these documents. It's a list of choices from A or B or C that you can mix and match to try and make things work. It's not very helpful, right? I mean, I don't think any of us would ever use a fluoroquinolone uh, in a standard kind of VAP patient uh, unless we had no choice. Uh, you know, the recommendations about how to use colistin, I mean, colistin is a laundry detergent masquerading as an antibiotic. Um, we shouldn't be using it anymore. It's got lots of toxicity issues, and we don't know how to dose it. And for polymyxin, it's not even the same drug from batch to batch. Uh, but let's talk about one of the principles that is emerging on the boards that I think is going to help us understand some of the problems and can also be applied at the bedside. And that's the notion of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So this is just a, a standard concentration time curve. You give a drug, the drug goes up in the target tissue and then decays over time. Pharmacokinetics just describes that concentration time profile. Pharmacodynamics correlates the concentration with the ability to kill the pathogen. So let's put it this way. PK gets you from dose to concentration. PD gets you from concentration to effect. And so it's the PK-PD relationship that gets you from dose to effect overall. And they've already, I mean, I took my research board. There were three questions on these concepts. They're on the exam, so you should be aware of them because you really probably haven't been exposed to them elsewhere. So this is the curve you should remember. When you give a drug, again, as I said, you've got that dose level that goes up in a target tissue and then it comes down. You can draw some in, you know, imaginary line for what the MIC is for the pathogen you're interested in. And then what it turns out is that for drugs like aminoglycosides, the key thing in terms of this relationship that drives outcomes is the peak concentration here relative to the MIC, right? That's why we do single daily dosing of aminoglycosides. 
for fluoroquinolones, it's basically the relationship between the area under this curve relative to the MIC, and for beta-lactams and carbapenems, it's how long do you keep the time above the MIC? How long is the time of the, you know, how long are you above some target above the MIC in the target tissue? Why does this matter? And we'll get to this for beta-lactams, but here's what it means for vancomycin. Vancomycin kills based on the relationship between that area under the curve I showed you, right, here, relative to that MIC. Well, you can't then think about how to dose the drug unless you actually understand the MICs of the pathogens you're treating. And when was the last time you actually looked at the MIC of any MRSA pathogen you've seen, right? So here are pathogen MICs for Staph aureus or MRSA to vancomycin, 0.51 and 2. Above 2, we're going to call it VISA, right, which we don't see. And if you give a 500 milligram IVQ12 dose to the standard critically ill patient and the MIC is, you know, 0.5, half the time you're given too little of a dose. If you do our standard gram Q12 and it's a 0.5, okay, you're doing all right. But if it's a one MIC, not gonna get there. And if it's a two, you're screwed. Well, it turns out right now that, you know, when we just look at the S or the Rs, we're missing the important piece of information because most of the MICs for let's say Staph aureus aren't here anymore. They're here or here. And so that's why the dosing recommendations for vancomycin are now very much weight-based and focused on the MIC of the pathogen, because even if you're given a gram and a half and the MIC is one, you're not getting there with the reliability. And if the MIC is two, you're not getting there at all. And this was a meta-analysis that someone published looking at the relationship between vanco-MIC and outcome in vancomycin-treated patients with Staph aureus pneumonia. And trust me, the higher the MIC with vancomycin, even if you're given higher doses of vancomycin, the outcomes are not very good. Now, let's talk again about Pseudomonas, right? Because that's our other key pathogen. This is also a study uh, that I wanna go over because I think it illustrates this whole concept about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and dosing intervals and duration of therapy. So this was a study that looked at two drugs, imipenem you're well aware of, doripenem you probably never heard of uh, because it was not approved in the US for pneumonia. And in this double-blind randomized controlled trial, they took two carbapenems, that were both active against pseudomonas. Doripenem was actually in vitro more active. They randomized patients to treatment with either. And what they saw in this study was that there was actually excess mortality in the people given the more, quote, potent drug. And it turned out what happened was, and these are CPIS scores, right? I showed you what the CPIS was previously. And they're getting lower as people are getting treated because they're getting better. Fever is responding, oxygenation is improving, you know, white counts going down. And then in this study, for these patients, and they all had pseudomonas, they stopped the doripenem at day seven and they continued the imipenem. And what you see is that the doripenem line starts going back up and the imipenem line starts going back down. And what they saw when they actually looked at 28 day all cause mortality in the pseudomonas population was that the patients randomized to doripenem died at a higher rate than the patients who got standard imipenem, even though the doripenem was in vitro more potent. I showed this study because I think it illustrates important limitations of PKPD, but I also show this study because I think it contravenes what the guidelines recommend in terms of seven to eight days of therapy for everybody. If you recall the original study I showed you with eight days of therapy with pseudomonas and the non-fermenters, there was a higher recurrence rate. Here's another study that says if you stop therapy at seven to eight days, you have a higher mortality rate. And so my personal belief 
And my personal practice is that for documented pseudomonas, I treat more than seven to eight days. Even though the guidelines don't distinguish between pseudomonas and non-pseudomonas about duration of therapy. So again, understand a guideline isn't the holy grail. The other thing I think that's important to realize that the CPIS can help you with is understanding who's getting worse and who's getting better in an objective fashion. Uh, this is a study uh, where we looked at a bunch of PF ratios, right, which are a component of the CPIS, and that's actually what really drives changes in CPIS uh, in a short term over a day or two. And what we saw was that <clears throat> the patients who were going to die didn't have their CPIS changing pretty much by 72 to 96 hours. And so if, you're, if your PF ratio is not getting better at 48 hours, there's something wrong going on. And one of those things that could be going on that's wrong is you've got a pathogen that's resistant to whatever you're treating them with. And so again, you can operationalize the CPIS not only to tell you who to start, not only to tell you when to stop, but also to tell you when someone's not getting better. So one aspect of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that's really important in the ICU is renal function. And what we know about renal function in the ICU is that the estimated or calculated GFR in a critically ill patient who's getting volume resuscitation and inotropes or vasopressors is in no way related to their actual creatinine clearance. And there are actually patients who are critically ill who have this phenomenon called augmented renal clearance where their creatinine clearance is not 100, it's 200. Their, their kidneys are in overdrive because of blood flow. And this is what is thought to explain this phenomenon of augmented renal clearance. There's vasodilation, there's an increased cardiac output that leads to more renal blood flow. You're giving fluids and vasoactive medications. And so it turns out you're clearing drug very quickly. This was a study done in Australia by one of my mentors. They actually measured the levels of beta-lactams with special technology that you can't get at the bedside. And they actually did 12-hour urines on patients to calculate and measure actually creatinine clearances. And what they saw was as the creatinine clearance went up, the level of the beta-lactam went down. And again, that's not really surprising, but look at how pronounced the effect is. And more importantly, look at all these people who have GFRs above 150. Who are these patients with augmented renal clearance? Well, they're generally trauma patients. So if you're in shocker, this is something you gotta worry about. Um, these are patients with SIRS and sepsis who have underlying normal renal function, which we collect a lot of in COVID. And so realize if you're giving antibiotics, <clears throat> the effective dose being seen at the target tissue, if you're not thinking about this, may be entirely zero. A lot of those dosing recommendations don't come from studies that included critically ill patients, which I said at the beginning. Most of those dosing recommendations for critically ill patients are what I would call swag, a scientific wild ass guess. And again, here's a clinical trial to prove it. Here's a drug called ceftabiprol. You've never heard of it. Failed its clinical trials in the U.S. They took patients who had nosocomial pneumonia, both VAP and non-VAP, randomized them to ceftabiprol or linazolid and ceftazidine, given at pretty hefty doses. And when they looked at predicted versus actual mortality, no difference in the non-VAP patients. But in the VAP patients, ceftabiprol killed you. Why? It turned out the VAP population was mainly head-injured trauma patients. And they went back and they looked and they all had augmented renal clearance. And so this really can matter. Why did linazolid and ceftaz not have this problem? Linazolid is not cleared by the kidney and they were given two grams Q8 of ceftaz, which is a whopping dose. And this is just the data table that proves that for the creatinine clearances of greater than 150, 
you can see the difference in clinical cure rates, and that ends up leading to a trend in differences in overall mortality. Can we use this augmented renal clearance concept or this pharmacokinetic principle about time and beta-lactams not to explain our failures, but to give us benefit? So this is one way to do it. And it goes back to literature that comes from 50 years ago before even I was in training. I know Chris is laughing and thinking about how long ago that was. But we used to treat penicillin-resistant pneumococcal meningitis with continuous infusion penicillin, and it worked. Because by giving the penicillin over an extended period of time, you kept that time above the MIC of the pathogen. And so here's a randomized controlled trial, and there have been several of these. They randomized patients to either bolus infusion, kind of standard infusion, or extended infusion, and they looked at cefepime, piptaz, or meropenem, 140 patients with severe sepsis and organ dysfunction. And what they saw was that with continuous infusion, you got better pharmacokinetics, right? This is the, the trough concentration of the drug, right? With meropenem, at the end of the first day, there ain't even any meropenem left in your blood. Then they looked at those targets in terms of the time above MIC on day one and day three, clearly much better uh, with continuous infusion than with bolus infusion. And then when they actually looked at clinical cure, a hard endpoint for what we care about, there was a statistically significant difference. Number needs to treat about five to eight. And so the point is, if you've got an ugly resistant pathogen, one option other than reaching for a very, very expensive novel antimicrobial is extending the duration of whatever you're giving so it's not just running over 30 minutes. And most new antibiotics that have been approved, if you know, uh, piss off your nurses because they have two to three hour run-in times for the, the kind of beta-lactam beta plus beta-lactamase inhibitor new drugs for this very reason, to optimize the pharmacokinetics. Now, what we don't know is, <clears throat> is there a way to prospectively guess which patients are going to benefit from extended or continuous infusion? Or how much ugly resistance do you have to have in your ICU before this helps? We just don't have those answers to the question. But again, there's been a lot of critical care literature that demonstrates that these principles of PK and PD matter in what we do at the bedside. So now let's actually look at some recent clinical trials in pneumonia. This was Zephyr. This was a randomized controlled trial of linazolid versus dose-optimized vancomycin. It was designed to, uh, with non-inferiority in mind, showing that <clears throat> linazolid did just as well as dose-optimized vanco, and realized this is a blinded study. There's a blinded pharmacist adjusting the dose of vancomycin, but there was also a clear superiority criteria. And in this study, in terms of clinical cure, linazolid was superior to vancomycin at the 15 mg per kg Q12. Now, small difference, but it's statistically significant. No difference in mortality, but the study wasn't powered for mortality. Why might this have occurred, even though the vanco was dose-optimized? Well, linazolid, in addition to not being cleared by the kidneys, you know, has excellent lung penetration and much better than vancomycin. Some people look at this study and say it's not enough of a difference to change their practice. It certainly got a lot of pushback when linazolid was branded, and now it's generic. Some people look at this and say, for every documented MRSA pneumonia, I'm going to go with linazolid unless they're perhaps bacteremic. But this is the clinical trial, and again, it's a landmark clinical trial in nosocomial pneumonia, so you should be aware of it. Let's talk about a new molecule that's been around for about a year and a half called cefidericol. Fascinating biology. It is a Trojan horse kind of mechanism. They got the cephalosporin paired with this kind of iron organ, iron piece, so it gets snuck into the cell uh, through the siderophore, through the iron transport mechanism, 
so it fools it. So that's why it's kind of got this Trojan horse kind of uh, reputation. It has activity in vitro against ESBLs, a lot of CRE, a lot of MDR pseudomonas against acinetobacter. It sounds great. Well, they have done, and I was one of the authors, this was published in uh, Lancet uh, ID uh, about a year ago, uh, looking at this drug versus meropenem 2 grams Q8 in HAP-NVAP, and the outcomes were equivalent. And unfortunately, of course, in most of these pneumonia trials that are kind of the all-comer proof of concept, there are none of the interesting pathogens we care about in terms of CRE or MDR pseudomonas or acinetobacter or what have you. But proof of concept, the drug gets in along, it kills the pus, does what it's supposed to. Here's the nuance. So they also did an open-label randomized trial against only carbapenem-resistant pathogens. And it was cefadericol versus best available therapy. And mainly best available therapy was colistin. A lot of different infections, most of it was pneumonia. About a third of this was acinetobacter. And clinical cure rates looked equivalent. Okay, fine. Well, when you look at all-cause mortality, it starts to look ugly. And cefadericol was at a trend towards worse mortality. Now, it's not a blinded trial. And some people have argued that, well, hey, the mortality rate in the best available therapy arm was actually remarkably low for the kinds of patients you were looking at. I'm kind of like, hmm, that's a kind of ass-backwards argument. Um, you know, it wasn't the treatment arm had a risk. It was the control arm was the risk mortality rate was too low. Sure. Um, but the point is, most of these were pneumonia. Most of these were, were acinetobacter where, where we really need a drug. And that's where you actually saw the signal of the most harm. So nobody really knows what the right answer is. Have we used this molecule at the hospital center? We have. Um, we have seen emergence of resistance on therapy, which was seen in the clinical trial, and that's thought perhaps the mechanism of this difference in mortality. Uh, Chris can comment better on it. We, we like this drug because it does work against the weirdo metallobetalactamase uh, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, which we all collect a little bit of, which, again, you know, the, 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 the India strains, um, which are much more prevalent in kind of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. But again, this is a struggle with the quality and the safety of the data. This is Aspect. This was also published in Lancet ID. This was all ventilated patients, whether it was ventilator-associated pneumonia or hospital-acquired pneumonia that ended up getting intubated, randomized to meropenem or septolazone tazobactam. Septolazone is a cephalosporin that has excellent anti-pseudomonal activity. You pair it with tazobactam, and it actually picks up ESBL activity, uh, which is unique because piperacillin doesn't do that, right? Tazo doesn't have ESBL activity. Everybody here will want lower airway cultures, so good data. And overall, the drug worked. And in the less sick patients, in the ventilated hospital-acquired pneumonia, there was this trend towards improved mortality that in a regression analysis post hoc suggested was real. Again, not a separate study, a subgroup analysis, you know, with regression used to kind of verify the difference, but just be aware of it. This drug was not available for like a year and a half because of a stockout issue. It's now back. We use this as our MDR pseudomonas drug because it's narrow enough to kill pseudomonas and it's less expensive than things like Abicast. Uh, this is imipenem relabactam. This just got approved. Um, this is a combination of imipenem with a novel beta-lactamase inhibitor called relabactam. Uh, relabactam picks up a lot of the KPCs, but not any of the MBLs. It works against ESBLs. It picks up anti-pseudomonal activity uh, because it's got uh, activity against AMPC-producing pseudomonas. Um, and here's a randomized controlled trial in pneumonia. This is looking at mortality, trend towards improved mortality, but again, just a trend. 
The comparator was PIPTAS, so you can guess that it's not a lot of very sick people in the study with ugly pathogens, which is true, um, but the drug did what it was supposed to do. Uh, this is their first trial, which was their best available therapy study. Um, it was basically imipenem, relabactam versus dose-optimized uh, colistin, right? Everybody got everyone got imipenem and they either got relabactam with it or colistin. Um, and what they saw in this study was what you'd exactly expect. So this is dose-optimized colistin, and this is the incidence of nephrotoxicity with colistin in real patients with real pathogens. It's huge. And it also was associated with an increased need for renal replacement therapy in terms of the colistin. So I show this data not to tell you a lot about imipenem I show this data because it's one of the few randomized controlled trials against colistin. And every study that has looked at colistin has shown that colistin's nephrotoxicity impact is substantial. And you and I both know that if we have to pull out the spin and rinse RRT machine, outcomes are not going to be good for our patients. In an era when we didn't have Avicast, Imurel, Ceftolazantizabactam, Cephodericol, sure, we didn't have a choice. Now we got lots of choices. This is Crackle. This is a fascinating study. Uh, it's not randomized. It's Ceftolazantizabactam also versus Clistin, looking at outcomes not as kind of one outcome, but kind of a hierarchy, looking at death, alive uh, in the hospital, but not home, and then discharged home, looking at patients with um, you know, either, you know, again, tree with ceftazidine, maybe Bactam, or colistin for their CRE. And just by looking at the weight of the darkness, here, colistin was associated with worse outcomes. So again, study after study says we need to be moving away from colistin. Here is a summary table that shows the various agents that we've now got available, some of which I didn't even talk about, like maripenem vapor Bactam or rabocycline. You know, plasmycin is an answer in search of a question looking at various kinds of uh, enterobacteriaceae, pseudomonas, the mechanisms of resistance, and acinetobacter, and you can see what they share and what they don't share. The point is, as intensivists, antibiotic prescribing can no longer be decerebrate. You just can't say Pitez vanco for everybody or meropenem vanco for everybody. You got to think about the pathogens you're treating, the specific ugly pathogens, what are the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic options you have available, and what are the newer options you have available and how to use them, right? This is our scope of practice. It is not only ID. We're the ones signing death certificates. We're the ones writing prescriptions. We need to embrace these tools in our toolkit and understand that they're not all interchangeable. They have different nuances. They have different data sets, but we need to understand how to apply them because our patients need them. And so you can see my uh, take-home messages there on the last slide. I have talked very quickly because I wanted to leave time for questions, so I apologize. Uh, we can certainly share these slides so anybody can look at them, and you're welcome to look back at them or criticize them or, you know, throw tomatoes as you want. But let me stop there and see if there are any questions at this point. Thanks so much.